Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Again, grab your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Church family, we need your help, okay? Uh, there are three men in this congregation that really need you. Um, there, there are three dads whose wives are at the uh, Women of Joy. And um, here's what we need you to do. We need you to tell our wives that our children were clothed, fed, and at Sunday school, okay? So just help us out, pass that along. Uh, we'd appreciate it. It's going to get us a long way. All right. In this passage, we've been kind of camping out in Ephesians chapter 4 for a few weeks. And when we've, over that last handful of weeks, we've kind of taken a journey. We've looked at what is the calling of every Christian? What is the saint's calling? And the saint's calling is to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not to go, but rather to make disciples, and we do that by going and baptizing and teaching. And so, to make disciples. And, and we're going to talk about in the next handful of weeks, uh, moving forward, what is a disciple? I feel like we need to define that for us, for our church, so we know the goal that we're trying to hit. And so, what is a disciple? We'll look at that. Um, but just, here we go, three, three simple things in one verse, Okay. Uh, a, a disciple is, remember this, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Okay, that's a, a generic, general de definition of a disciple. Follow, somebody who's following, somebody who's being made into the image of Jesus, and somebody who is becoming a fisher of men. That's what a disciple is. And so we talked about making disciples a few weeks ago. Then the next week we looked at what's the church calling. The church's calling is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, last week we talked about the disciples' transformation, how each one of us is on a journey uh, to be made more like Jesus. And you might have looked at your spouse this morning and said it's not happening quickly enough, but uh, we're on a journey trying to be made like Jesus. And He uh, does um, so much work through salvation, through His Holy Spirit within us, but we have some responsibility to put off and to put on and to be renewed in mind. To put off the old man, to put on the new man, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We looked at that last week, and today we're going to look at the disciples' unity right out of this passage. And so before I get to this idea of unity, I just want to kind of look backward for a moment. Problems in the church are not new to the 21st century. Not new to the 21st century. In the early church, we see a couple main categories of kind of issues or struggles inside the church. And they could be basically two things. They were both destructive to the 
the purpose of God, the progress of the church, and to destructive to God's glory. The first category is teaching. Teaching, false teaching, destructive teaching. So it was either a teacher who taught a message that was not the truth of God that was revealed in Scripture, or a teacher who focused on part of the truth while ignoring the remainder of the truth. In false teaching and partial teaching, both issues that were plaguing the early church. And if you read the Old or the New Testament, you'll find out lots about false teachers. The second one was the second category is the problems of divisions inside the church. Some of the divisions were because of the first problem of false teaching. And those kinds of divisions are necessary, even healthy for the church, to discern what is true and right and good, what is according to Scripture and what is not. Uh, John says in his epistle, 1 John, he says to test the spirits. Why? Because not every spirit is from the Lord. And so there was a, a good kind of division, and then other divisions came because of the sin of some, the personalities of others, or because people were raised and brought up in a certain way, and then they take their upbringing and apply it to somebody else's life, and that causes friction. Now, if you're a student of God's Word, you don't have to, uh, it doesn't take very long to understand that the sin of mankind has quickly blemished what God perfectly created. And one of the ways that that has happened is in broken relationships. Broken relationships. And so just follow along with me, Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God, and what happened to their own relationship? Eve blamed the serpent, and Adam blamed Eve and God. The next chapter in the Bible, Cain kills Abel. Abraham and Lot argue over um, their their flocks and herds taking up too much of the land's uh, um, resources, and so they argue over that. Saul once loves David and later tries to kill David, right? Judas and Jesus. We see the sin of some affecting the relationships with others. And in the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, kindred spirits, and then they even have a disagreement over a young man named John Mark. And you say, man, that's a lot of conflict. And every epistle you'll read has conflict inside it, divisions, disunity inside it. And it's a problem in the church. In the Bible, Paul says that there were divisions over what day of the week should be honored as holy. There were divisions over spiritual gifts. There was disunity over what kinds of food and drink we should and shouldn't use. And whatever the reason for the divisions, they were a prominent topic in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that? Amen? Are you with me? Both false teaching and divisions were a problem in the early church. And guess what? There's still a problem in the church today, aren't they? And, and I'll, I'll be honest, I think they seem to be increasing, especially since COVID. Think about COVID. What did COVID force every church to learn how to do? Learned how to use the interwebs, right? Every church became online during that time period. And, and that online platform gave false teachers a platform that they had never had in all of history. Are you with me? Gosh, it, 
um, on, on my news feed on Facebook is just a lot of preachers. And I, I love listening to good preaching, and I, I love following people who are going to challenge me and encourage me. And, and I find out very quickly that, man, some of them are running away from the truth as preachers of God's Word. And if you have a sinful passion that you don't want to get rid of, guess what? You can find a teacher who's suitable for you, who will tell you what you're doing is okay, and your sins will be justified. And COVID has also intensified the critical spirits that people inside the church and outside the church have. Trust is low, divisions are high. Have you noticed that? You can't believe anything. That's just kind of the culture that we live in right now. Trust is low, divisions are high, and that has brought disunity to our nation, amen, and to our church. And when I say our church, I don't just mean our church, I mean the church. There's a man named Ray Stedman. Anybody know who Ray Stedman is? Ever heard of him? He, he says it this way, He's, I think we've got it up on the screen, and Edward, I'd really appreciate seeing on the back screen what's on this screen. That'd be amazing if y'all can help me with that. He said, there's no question that one of the most destructive forces in the church today is conflict between Christians. Divisions among brothers and sisters have destroyed churches, destroyed lives, and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ into disrepute. That's either one of those times or places we either need to say amen or ouch. One of the most destructive forces in the church today is conflict between Christians. And maybe you have been a part of a divisive relationship or something inside the church. And you know, you may know firsthand what kind of pain that causes. How it fractures relationships. Are you with me, church family? And, and how it does tear away at the fabric of the gospel that we preach every week. Even necessary divisions over true things are hard and painful and discouraging to even the most spiritual among you. They're hard. And they even necessary divisions create a black eye for God's church in the eyes of the community around us. Leonard Ravenhill, a 20th century revivalist, says it this way. He says, one of the great tragedies of today is that we have a sick church in a dying world. A sick church in a dying world. In the New Testament, Paul uh, calls out the church and warns against divisions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, I appeal to you, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And again, he pleads with the church, that unity would be had at any cost. And he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, this is Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. For Paul, unity was the anti-venom for the sin of divisiveness. But before we can talk about unity, we need to define it. We need to define it. So today, before we define what it is, we're going to look at what it's not. What is unity not? Now, J.D. Greer gives four things that unity is not. I'm going to give those to you. He says, unity is not uniformity. And we've been talking about that a lot through spiritual gifts. Unity is not uniformity where everyone is alike. We all look alike, dress alike, talk alike, think alike, and we all agree about everything. Wouldn't it be a boring world if everybody looked alike, talked alike, believed alike, and agreed about everything? Aren't you glad that God's creative in His design? It's not uniformity. Secondly, it's not relativism. It's not relativism. Relativism says that everyone is right about everything. That you're right and you're right. Two plus two is four. Well, I think it's three. Well, you're right about that. That's your truth. That's, that's not what unity is. And that's exactly what our country is trying to unify over. We're losing our minds to unify together or try to unify. It's not relativism. It's also not abandoning the faith. Some people will say, if we want to be unified, we cannot take clear stances on anything. And that's not what unity is. Amen? We must Take clear stances on biblical conviction, biblical truth. It's also not sentimentality. Sentimentality would say, well, listen, we'll just gloss over our difference so that we have the appearance of unity without actually having unity. And sometimes we can just gloss over things and that's not what unity is. So what is unity? Here's a definition if you want to write it down. It's the gift of God, which is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, backgrounds, and social classes into one family by faith in Christ. You're going to see that a couple times. I'm going to say it again. A gift of God, which is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, and backgrounds and social classes into one family by faith in Christ. That is going to be our working definition of unity. Is it perfect? I'm sure it's not, but it's as good as I can find right now. So look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, I therefore. We have to understand what the therefore is there for. Are you with me? And so what does that therefore point back to? A therefore points backward in the scripture, and what does it point back to? Well, chapter 1 is all about how God, in His mercy, has given every spiritual blessing to us in Christ. Isn't that a good news? What good news? What a joy. We're not lacking in any spiritual blessing. We have access to them all. Secondly, in chapter 2, chapter 2 is the basis of the blessings is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. 
salvation. It's all about salvation. In chapter 2 and chapter 3 is the effects of the gospel says that we are one in Christ. Now, look on the screen. I think I have this idea of a number of verses in chapter 2 that kind of point us to what is happening in the therefore. The therefore. Chapter 2, verse 14. We're no longer Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 14 says that the, that happened because the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. In other words, the, the laws that separated us, the dividing walls that have separated us have been torn down and we are no longer Jews and Gentiles. Instead, verse 15, one new man is in the place of two. One new man is in the place of two. Which is the result of that, verses 15 through 17, we have peace with God and peace with one another. Verse 19, now we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In 22, we are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise. How does unity happen? What is the therefore, therefore? It says that Christ has done everything necessary to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, so making peace with God that we can have peace with man. And instead of many nations, there is one people in Jesus. And now we are brothers and sisters in the same body. We are fellow heirs of Christ. We are participants or partakers of the same body and partakers of the same promise. So let me go back to our definition. Our definition says unity is a gift of God, which is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, background, social classes into one family through faith in Jesus. So let's look at our passage one more time. He says, I urge you. I, therefore, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you've been called. And then he describes how we do that with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so he says to walk in a manner. I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the one you've been called. And he says, and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Today, I just want to speak for a few minutes about what is the grounds for our unity. What's the basis for unity? Paul, right here in chapter 4, mentions a sevenfold unity. Look at it. Verse 4, there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Sevenfold unity. And in those, those seven statements, those seven ones, we see three ideas. We see three ideas. The grounds of our unity in Christ is first, it's in salvation. In salvation. What does that mean? 
What does that mean for us that the grounds of our unity is in salvation? First, it means that before Christ, we are equally sinful and rebellious against God. Now you might say, Ryan, I'm not like them. No, you might not be like them. Your sins are different than the them, but your sins equally separate you from God, and your sins equally deserve a condemnation from God, wrath from God, and judgment from God. I often say the ground at the foot of the cross is level. So before God, there's not a hierarchy of sin. Oftentimes we think about sin as we say, this sin is way up here, it has this level of badness, and this sin has this level of wickedness, and this sin is way up here, and we see it kind of like we see a landscape of buildings. We look at a city, we look at it from a bird's eye view, or a a person's eye view, street view, and we see that this building's taller than this building, and so on and so forth. But God looks at it from a bird's eye view, all of them he's looking down on top of, and all of them are equal in what they accomplish against him. They are all rebellion, whether it's greed in our hearts or murder in our hands. We are all equally sinful, and therefore we must all equally be dependent on a Savior. None of us can save ourselves. None of us can save ourselves, and we need a Savior. There is one way of salvation that all must come under. None of us earns our own way. We are all poor in spirit, and our spiritual bank accounts emptied out, and Christ has paid all for all who believe. And we're saved to an equal state. When God saves you, no one is more saved than the other person. You're not saved to a a higher status than another person is saved to. No one's salvation is more secure than another person's salvation. Why? Because our salvation is entirely dependent on Him, and that means that we can be unified because we have no leg to stand on. We have no reason to boast before man or before God. So I'm going to stop for just a moment and say, you might be here today, and you might not know if you're saved or not. You might realize that you're a sinner, but you might have been trying for your life to be a good person, to do good things, to work really hard, to make God happy. And if you can make God happy, or maybe your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you'll have a chance of getting into heaven. And I just want to tell you today, brother or sister, friend, that is no truth. There is no biblical truth in that thought. The truth is that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And today, if you want to be saved, it's not through your moral behavior. It's through Christ's perfect salvation. Don't trust in what you can do. Trust in what he's finished. Our unity, the grounds of our unity is in salvation. Secondly, it's in the body. It's in the body. Now, he says that here. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you. And then in verse 7, if you follow along, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, you have been made a part of the body by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. You have been born again as a new person into God's family. And into God's family, God has gifted you by His grace different gifts to serve inside His body. And we are all equal in that. We are all entirely necessary. Now, how many of you have ever heard this song? The foot bone's connected to the ankle bone. The ankle bone's connected to the shin bone. The shin bone's connected. I don't even remember what's next, okay? The knee bone, whatever the knee bone is. Ankle bone, foot bone. You know, let's just make some stuff up. Now, how many of you have heard that song before? All right. How many of you sung that song maybe to your children or something? Okay. All right. Fun song, silly song, bad theology, okay? Bad theology. Not great theology. Now, here's the problem with it. It's almost like we, we like Legos at our house. How many of your, your children ever like Legos? Now, at our house, uh, we used to have these beautiful Lego sets that were built, and they set up on top of a shelf on display. And then what happened? What's that? They fall down. Or Liam comes over to our house and, and destroys one of them. It just happens. Ella got, when Ella was a baby, she'd get a hold of one of Miles. And Miles would say, Dad, she's destroying it. And I'd say, well, just build it again. Part of the fun of Legos, right? It was not. It was not a part of the fun for Miles. But this, this kind of picture envisions that God is kind of like a giant Lego builder. And now instead of displays on a shelf, you know what we have at our house? Tubs of Lego pieces. How many of you parents or grandparents, you still have tubs of Lego pieces? Okay. So we have tubs of Lego pieces. And, and this song kind of envisions that God has a tub of toes and a tub of ankle bones and a tug a tub of shin bones and a tub of knee bones and what's he doing he's attaching the the foot bone to the ankle bone the ankle bone to the shin bone the shin bone to the knee bone hear the word of the lord it's kind of what it envisions that all of these things have life in and of themselves and then he's bringing them and putting them together but that's not the picture of the bible the picture of the bible found in ezekiel is that God does bring pieces together, but they have no life until God makes the, the dead bones live by His Spirit. And in the New Testament, the New Testament speaks of being born again. We have no life apart from God. Rather, it, the idea of being born again is that life would begin through one person, and through that one person, that cell at conception gives birth and multiplies to more cells, and those cells multiply until the body begins to take shape. But all life comes from the one cell. All life has its root in Christ, and Christ makes us all alive, and He brings us all life, and we don't have life apart from Him, but we only have life in Him. Are you with me, church? So none of us who are a part of the body can claim that we are something without Him. 
God didn't add you to His body because you had skills. God added you to His body by grace, through faith, as the Spirit caused you to come to life. And we have unity in that. That again, our boasting is not in how good we are or how glad God is that we're on His team, but rather the fact that God has caused me to be born again to a living hope. And by His grace has grafted me into this body, this family that I don't belong to. And He's gifted me with, with spiritual gifts to use for His glory. And I take credit for none of those things. It's a humbling yet unifying truth in God's Word. There's one body and one spirit. Third, in mission. In mission. He says, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So much of this is about the body's mission mission. Now, many of us think that you've got to have unity before you have mission. But Jesus, in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, bases the unity that he's praying for the church or his disciples to have. He's basing it on the mission that he's calling them to. Hear me. John chapter 17, if you want to turn there with me in verse 18. John 17, verse 18, and then we'll look at 18, 20, and 21. John 17, he says, verse 18, as you sent me into the world. This is Jesus praying to the Father. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. As you sent me, Father, I'm sending them, and I'm, I'm praying for these, and I'm praying for those who will believe in me through these. Are you with me, church? There is a mission that Jesus says, I'm sending you, and there is a unity that he's praying for, and it's in connection with the mission. He also continues in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's the goal of unity? The goal of unity is not unity. The goal of unity is mission. He put us on mission. He prays for us to have mission. And the goal of that mission, or that unity, is mission. Many, if not most, of the conflicts and division inside the church come from mission drift. Have you ever heard that word? Mission drift is when an organization who has an expressed mission deviates from that mission. Our mission is not inside the walls of Seneca Baptist Church, but where is our mission? Outside these walls. 
And any time a church gets off of their mission, their intended mission, what happens to any group of people when they forget their mission is divisions and disunity. Finish this statement with me. There are two things that unite a people, a common goal and a common enemy. Have you ever heard that? Two things that unite a a group of people, a common goal and a common enemy. I'll, I'll share with you about the common enemy real fast. Think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, in, in the New Testament. Did the Pharisees and the Sadducees agree on everything? No, the Pharisees said that there was a resurrection. The Sadducees said that there wasn't. Then the zealots, then the lawyers. Did they all agree on everything? No. But who in the, the end of the gospel, who did they make their common enemy to be? Christ, Jesus. And they came together to crucify our Savior. Two things that unite us, a common goal and a common enemy. And if we don't have a common goal, guess what we'll make? Common enemies. Our, the unity of our, or the, the basis of our unity is in three things, in salvation, in the body, and in mission. In mission. God has given to His church and to our church a mission. And any time we neglect that mission, we find reasons to fight with each other. And in verse 3 here of Ephesians chapter 4, so go flip back there with me. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, he says, Therefore, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, a little bit of instruction and I'm going to close. The unity of the what? The Spirit. Who is the author of unity in this passage? The Spirit. Do, are we to create a unity? No. It's a gift of His Spirit. But we are to be eager to maintain the unity that God gives to us through His Spirit. Unity is the gift of God through the Spirit of God. God planned it. Christ accomplished it. The Spirit applied it to us. And now we ought to be eager to maintain that which Christ has accomplished. And it doesn't mean that we have to agree about everything. It doesn't mean that churches, people, I mean, play that out for a moment, church family. Are you married? Do you agree with your spouse about everything? Just me and Liz, huh? Thanks. We don't agree about everything. But we can be God has made us one, one unit, one body in the place of two. So, next week we're going to look at this singular verse and the implications of how we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But I want to end us with a few reflection questions.
Okay, so put your eyes up on the screen. How do we see disunity in the church? God's church. Maybe you want to think big C church. Maybe you want to think little C church. Are those divisions and is that disunity necessary or unnecessary? Remember, there are some divisions over truth, over gospel, over biblical conviction, what God has clearly revealed that are necessary, and there are some that aren't. So the ones that you see, are they unnecessary or necessary? Three, what negative consequences have, has division caused? Maybe you went to a church as a kid that had a split, and you still kind of harbor some things from that. Maybe you've experienced it more recently. What are the negative consequences or effects of division? And last, is there anything that you need to repent of? I know there are things that I do. So as we close our day, might we just kind of sit with the Lord before these sit before the Lord with these questions? So would you just we're going to have a moment of silence? A time of reflection. And if you want to come to the altar and meet with the Lord there, you do so. But let's just, I'm going to ask the Lord and we're going to have a, a time of reflection and then we'll sing together to close our service. Father, today we come to you. And we look at a topic that's hard And next week we're going to look at how that gets practical. But Father, today we want to sit with you and we want your Holy Spirit to do in our hearts and in my heart what only your Holy Spirit can do. I surrender myself, my thoughts to you. Let your word be sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it cut us and expose us and lay us bare that we might be healed and forgiven. Father, if we have sins, let us confess them that you might be faithful to forgive them. Thank you for Christ. And Father, where we have failed you, guide us in the days ahead. Where we have not put off what is earthly among us, let us put off the old man. Let us put on the new man. But Father, meet with us here in this moment of silence and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Miss Margaret, would you just play for a moment? You meet with the Lord. If you'd like to pray with myself or another one of our pastors, Joe and Steve and Ken are all right here. They'd love to pray with you. But you meet with the Lord. Let's stand together and respond to Him.